This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their safe spaces, in their bubbles around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay in Dunedin, and I am joined from Fakutani by Mawera Karatai. Kia ora, Mawera. Kia ora, Sam. Kia ora, Sam. How's it going? It's going very well indeed. That's good. And who do you have for us to talk to today? Today we are talking with Mashtak Memon is the project manager for the UN Environmental Projects and the Regional Coordinator for Sustainability based in Bangkok. That is a lot of responsibility. Welcome, Mushtaq. Thank you. Thank you very much. How are things going in Bangkok? Okay. Uh, I sub- uh, for COVID, like uh, Thailand uh, is uh, coping up quite well. I mean, there's no local transmission anymore. And so they have... Uh, gradually opened up uh, quite many things, uh, including uh, malls and even cinema halls and so on, though the international flights are not yet allowed in. So uh, I think they are looking forward first to see that all the local like transmissions are controlled and then they will have quarantine systems in place for international flights. So I think Thailand is one of the best countries who really managed quite well. Did it ever go into a full lockdown? Yeah, so we uh, that was a good decision. So we went to the uh, lockdown, a total lockdown with the night curfews even, and uh, ban on the interprovincial travels. Uh, so it was uh, for four to six weeks, and then they gradually started lifting uh, first the curfew, reducing the time. And then started uh, redu- uh, lifting the ban on the travel, except one or two provinces still uh, have to like uh, register. But uh, so there was a total lockdown. What was the messaging that they were using to to get people to go to lockdown? Was it a, a, a let's do this together, let's do this to keep yourself safe? How, how did they how did they message that? Okay, uh, it's I think more of a culture like uh, this part of Asia where people usually obey the government and obey the religious leaders and uh, obey the seniors. So I think that culture works quite well, that uh, when the message is given, they do not question that usually. They all think it's a community sense in the best interest of community. So the message was very clear that uh, we need to avoid uh, spread of the virus by social distancing, by keeping ourselves inside without coming out for unnecessary, like only for necessary things and so on. And uh, so also the government tried to provide a little support to survive for the poor people uh, because uh, the jobs, especially the daily wagers, like uh, there was a challenge. So government tried, but then also some rich people, others, they also helped out. So I think they coped quite well. And during lockdown, did you manage to get work done? Sorry? Did you manage to work lockdown. during lockdown? Yeah, yeah. I mean, rather, uh, I would say it uh, went to 300, per, uh, like uh, uh, three times more because uh, it was a sort of a situation all over the world. So on the one hand, people were saving on the commuting, like usually in the cities, it takes one to two hours of commuting uh, one way. So that was one saving. And then also most of the people who were at the home, so it was at their ease or convenience to connect with the people anytime to get the solutions and so on. So I would say, still think that the work uh, load went to rather uh, two or three times uh, more than the normal times. Did you and your team work from home? Yeah, yeah, we're still working from home because you are also gradually uh, opening up with the, only the critical staff back now. 
and from 1st July, it will be second phase. We have 50%, so initially 20%, then 50%, so it's a gradual return, like, again. Did it change priorities for you, or did you able to carry on doing the work you were doing? Uh, not as a priority, but uh, as the process-wise, uh, I suppose. So suppose, uh, uh, on the one hand, I have my normal, like, uh, uh, work uh, plan, like uh, STG-12, for example, responsible consumption and production, looking on the many issues like uh, even packaging, like uh, plastics, uh, sustainable food uh, systems, uh, looking on the sustainable mobility or transport, housing and so on, uh, manufacturing. So like uh, a whole like uh, value chains. So on the one hand, those uh, value chains changed a bit like uh, in the lockdown, the lot of packaging waste, home delivery, food and so on. So you have to look on that uh, processes that how you really help that uh, manage that type of uh, sustainable consumption and production during the lockdowns and also when they are opening up. But number two also, the how to jump start the SMEs, small and medium enterprises and businesses because of the lockdown, there was a lot of uh, impact on the tourism industry and all the manufacturing and everything. So again, to bring this economic stimulus in a way that the sectors which are opening up uh, first, like a uh, construction sector and so on. So how you help the SMEs. So basically, the priority is a sustainable consumption and production, but the process is changed. But then I also got additional responsibility for a global coordination on the COVID waste management, medical waste, because again, we saw a lot of uh, challenges with the increase in the waste, medical waste, but also the processes to collect or uh, source segregate the waste because of the fear of infections and all this. So how you change the proper gear for the waste collection systems, disinfections and so on. So that's where like the whole the uh, focus is now. So as I mentioned, the workload has uh, increased, but that's quite exciting and challenging to really help the world out. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. It's not warm when she's away Ain't no sunshine when she's gone And she's always gone too long Anytime she goes away Wonder this time where she's gone Wonder if she's gone to stay Ain't no sunshine when she's gone And this house just ain't no home Anytime she goes away And I know, I know, I know, I know sunshine when she's gone Only darkness every day Ain't no sunshine when she's gone It's just house just ain't no home Anytime she goes away So how do you go about uh, considering a problem like uh, the waste management of, of, of medical waste across the whole the whole world? Is, is it is it you look at what's going on in front of you and, and then multiply that out, or do you take take um, okay. the information uh, from everywhere? Yeah. So suppose WHO World Health Organization. So they are primarily like helping on the medical waste itself. And we, United Nations Environment Management, we work on the integrated solid waste management with a focus on avoiding any environmental damage uh, because of the waste. So connecting with that environmental damage back to the biodiversity, public health, uh, contamination of water uh, sources and so on. So in the broader scale, it's again goes back to the public health. But so the, looking on that, first of all, the, 
even in many developing countries, the waste management systems are not at optimum because of the paucity of the funding. The GDP is low. The people uh, are not paying the fees uh, required and so on. So on the one hand, we focus on the reduction of the waste uh, to reduce the costs of that. And number two is the source segregation, which is also a cultural issues in many places to look into that. Third level is that how to properly collect and recycling. And also, again, the cultural uh, like behavioral changes to buy the recyclable products and so on. So to bring this whole uh, like a phenomena to the waste management in a larger group, but more to the medical waste, because as the most of the medical waste is uh, non-hazardous if segregated at source. But if it's mixed, then all uh, gets uh, in, uh, infectious and all this. So we have to give those messaging properly, how to live with medical waste, how to segregate, how to collect, and how to properly treat and so on to avoid any environmental negative impacts or toxic like uh, fumes or the water contamination, which again goes back into the public health. What are the levers that you have available to you? Is it mostly about providing information on, on best practices? Or do you, do you have some other okay. mechanisms? Like uh, UN uh, as a normative agency on the one hand, and UN working with the governments at the first level because it's an intergovernmental like uh, agency. So all the governments like uh, uh, for environment, Ministry of Environment for all the countries are focal points for and uh, similarly for uh, the General Assembly, the foreign ministers, and so on. So basically, our first entry point is always the national governments to start with. And as a normative function, one is also to help them to come up with the treaties or agreements, like a Basel Convention on Waste Management, which prohibits trade of the hazardous waste from the developed countries to the developing countries, for example. So on the one hand, we work with the governments to come up with the understanding, the bilateral, regional, and the global level, how to avoid dumping the waste in other countries and so on. For example, if we talk about waste. Then other part is also to, to uh, avoid that. What are the capacities required in a country to self-manage their own waste management? So then we help them with the guidance on the assessments of the waste, as I mentioned, the reduction of the waste uh, on the proper technologies to collect and recycle or treat the waste or the proper regulation. So again, most of times, because again, it's intergovernmental, so we, we bring the knowledge, suppose bringing the knowledge from New Zealand to the, let's say, Philippines, to any other. So knowledge share is another. As the World Bank and ADB, they are the financing. They invest in more in the inf infrastructure or that. But we are more, as I say, normative, awareness raising, advocacy, and knowledge share. So those are our main targets and so on. One of the challenges of, well, one of the mantras of sustainability is the think global, act local. And it's it's something which everybody knows is a thing which they really need to be doing, but there aren't any sort of real guidelines on how you how you do that. It's, it's interesting in the role that you're working in that you are doing both of those things, that it is about the, the thinking global and helping, at least at the national level, the, 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 the countries doing something about that, putting that into, into practice. Okay, so the biggest challenge, again, I would say is a culture or the behaviours. Suppose uh, when people are not convinced that uh, their small action can change the world, they do not take the actions. Now, and they cannot see that their small actions, how with, uh, like impact those are creating. So even in this era of uh, internet and uh, knowledge uh, and so on, it's not yet like uh, they cannot map out that if they are saving something, how it's going to be part in the parcel. That's one thing. So they have to, so it's a role of the national governments and local governments to really map out that what each citizen's action can contribute towards, uh, let's say again, waste management through reduction, through source segregation, through reusing, recycling, and so on, for example. So everyone becomes part of our fields that they have stakes in the game. And number two, they should enjoy that. They should not feel it as a responsibility, as like a liability, but rather they feel that it's a pride. So if I'm using a recyclable costume, it's a pride. If I'm sharing a, a car with someone, it's a pride, for example. 
So that's another like how you bring the champions, the celebrities and so on to make it. But again, on the top, it goes to the national government to really align that, that people feel that they are. And that's how the people also uh, vote for the governments or the politicians that their agenda, the environmental agenda on the top of that. So it goes both ways that people bring their, uh, choose their leaders who are environmental conscious and then leaders create an environment where people feel that they are part of the game and they feel pride into that. Do you actively try and move things from a feeling of compliance to a feeling of we're creating a better world, this is a good thing to be doing, let's, let's enjoy this? Yeah, so as uh, one of my areas of work is a sustainable lifestyles and education. So like uh, how we live, uh, I mean, if we take the energy, how we go energy efficient, energy saving or renewable energy, like uh, suppose uh, we opt for that, uh, whether it be in terms of uh, mobility, our, our housing uh, or anything, uh, agriculture. So the energy for any sectors, how we live with, uh, like how we feel into that. Same goes with the uh, mobility, like uh, instead of uh, having own cars, uh, feeling a pride of uh, owning a car, feeling a pride in uh, using a public transport and so on, and rather using that time of uh, one hour drive, you have a one hour to do something on your uh, computer or tablet to produce something more productive for your family, for kids, for friends, and so on. So that's how you really feel that you save that one hour instead of driving your own car, you are on a bus and you are uh, be productive for, uh, for that one hour even. So same with the costume, same with the, like my wardrobe, your wardrobe and so on. So I think we are working under this uh, sustainable lifestyles quite well and uh, trying to attract the celebrities as well, the influencers and so on. And uh, so I think that's the best thing. Uh, suppose even like New Zealand Prime Minister, she showed that uh, in the lockdown waiting outside for the coffee shop. So that influenced a lot of behaviors like that. But in some countries, if the... Prime Minister not wearing the mask and asking people to wear the mask goes other way around. So that's where we have to see that how we... Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokadui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, na mihi aroha nui ke koutou kotahuho. I hope you're all having the best day. Beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. And twice now I've spoken to you from a very exciting moving vehicle one of the many wonderful tools as a species of animal the product of literally billions of years of life co-evolving here on this paradise planet we have created to facilitate the ongoing adventures that we are all sharing at this time and of course the adventures that I'm having today I'm so grateful to share with you so I have been driving up and down from beautiful Aote Dunedin to the absolutely stunning Oamaru in order to collect many pieces of bird feeder from the beautiful top flight who we work with. And in just the same way that Harvey Penfold and I were musing on what it is to be business owners and business people, and this is, of course, staying up all hours of the day and night, packaging up bird feeders that we have made here in Mosgiel. In just the same way, Top Flight are a really wonderful family business that we're so grateful to work with. And we've been so lucky that all the people we've worked with on this Peka Peka Bird Feeder Project have just been so amazing. We're so grateful. So today, I was also able, before I set off for the mighty Oamaru, to return to what I love to invest in the whole universe, which is, of course, spending time with beautiful, beautiful people at my heart's home, Orokanui Eco Sanctuary. And today I was very lucky to host 19 wonderful Year 3 students from Sawyer's Bay School. And of course, I can say all of these words, but what really happened was a wonderful, wonderful communion with the real world with the living world, with the natural world. And for all of us, that sense of oneness with the natural world, the real world. And for all these beautiful people that came to visit me today, it was such a joy to be back together again in real life and hear about all the things that they love and connect with already from the real world. 
and to join them in frolicking about joyfully through the winter wonderland at Orokunui Eco Sanctuary, falling on the ground and making ice angels in the frosty grass, finding takahe poo and ice up spider webs, visiting the takahe in the Otago Skirk, hearing the kaka calling and going searching for them. All of these things that makes Orokunui such a magical, magical place and my favourite place in the whole universe. And of course this really brought home to me how lucky I am to have this real sense of purpose and connection and meaning in the work that I do. And it is my real passion in my whole life. And I'm so grateful that I can dedicate myself to the real world in this way, in such a fun way. And I feel so lucky that I can work with beautiful, beautiful people who have more newly arrived on the face of this paradise planet. And I think for a lot of people whose work this is not, interacting with children is really hard and it's not something they're familiar with. And of course I'm the opposite. I'm very comfortable interacting with children and have done for the last 18 years. And that's the universe that I really enjoy exploring. It's that sense of wonder and that sense of appreciation and that sense of gratitude and that sense of excitement. All of those feelings which unfortunately can be more readily available to younger people who are more newly arrived in this paradise now. But I believe for all of us we can get back in touch with that sense of wonder and that sense of immediacy and presence and connection with the world around us. Especially by spending time with beautiful younger people or spending time connecting with our younger selves and the kind of experiences that we loved or the kind of experiences we would have loved to have and giving them to ourselves. And whether or not you're connecting with your own inner child or with an outer child, or both. It's a really wonderful and very therapeutic way to remember who you are and to remember how connected you are in an infinite web to all life and how much fun and excitement and adventure abounds around you constantly, especially when you have the opportunity to go outside into the real world and experience it. So I've had such a wonderful, wonderful day having my first school group back to Orokunui Eco Sanctuary. And I really hope in whatever way you are returning to your work, your passion, your life's meaning, and sharing that love that you have with those around you, I hope you're just having the most wonderful sense of homecoming and happiness and peace. And I look forward to talking to you tomorrow. Thanks so much. Kakite. Do you think in some ways the pandemic will make your work easier in the future because it has shown people and governments that they can change? Yeah, I mean, some uh, areas will go easy. Like uh, we saw that there's uh, improvements in the environment, in the air quality and uh, greenhouse gases reductions. So they gave uh, evidence to the people uh, who are not believing that with human actions, we can do the things uh, like that way. So that will be easier in a way. But again, this pandemic has created a lot of uh, people below the poverty line, uh, push that. So that is an enormous challenge, how you bring the proper stimulus packaging and bringing the new skill sets. Because with this industry 4.0, the modern technologies, how you really train the people that they go back, not like uh, weaving themselves the cloth, but working with the robots who are weaving the clothes for them, for example. So that's where like, we are seeing that uh, the challenge of uh, how you change the skill sets, how you bring the new type of businesses to bring back people above the poverty line and with the proper health care and education and everything. I suppose that brings it back to Brundtland-type definitions of sustainability or the Venn diagram, that it does show that the, that the sustainable future is that bit in the middle where it's got the society and the economy and the environment all thriving. Um, and it's shown yeah. how you, you can't really separate those things out in any great um, extent. Exactly. So that's why like these three pillars are interlinked, uh, social, economic and environmental, because 
Anyway, the environmental resources are required for a, our economic and social development, but then those environmental resources has to be self-like uh, generated, not to be contaminated and so on. So that means like uh, efficiency of the environmental resources is very important. So efficiency goes both ways. That means we use uh, lesser environmental resources to achieve same quality of life, same mobility, same energy. But on the other hand, also we reduce the less, uh, less pollution or contamination to not to destroy those environmental resources. So they keep on the self-generating pace to support the systems very well. Is this pandemic an opportunity for us to think about the 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 harder questions in the in this field, whether or not growth is a sustainable growth is an oxymoron, those sorts of questions? Has it brought those questions to the fore? Yeah, because see, many uh, as I said, health then become economy in this pandemic. So many people were not focusing on environment, but. As I say, environment is the underlying thing. So even uh, uh, without environment, public health cannot improve or sustain uh, water uh, pollution, air pollution, and all these things. And then also for economy, unless the natural resources are in a proper, like uh, available uh, level, then they cannot support the long-term economic like growth. So these two things on the health and economy are very uh, directly related with the environment. But that message initially got lost. But with the uh, Secretary General of United Nations keep pushing on the climate change and uh, all this, that has come out very clearly. So even like now we are uh, supporting that uh, we put the stimulus or jumpstart the SMEs who are green SMEs or who have a potential to be green SMEs. Now, what does it mean it means that smes whose production systems like in energy consumption water and so on very efficient and uh, not harming the environment number two their supply chains are green supply chains like reusing the recycling and recovery and all this and then their products become green suppose from a fluorescent uh, uh, bulbs to the led lights for example or from the combustion engines to the electric engines for example and then also their business models like uh, instead of selling the product, leasing the uh, product or uh, like providing lighting as a service rather selling a bulb. So they have a control on the full inventory and they can properly recycle, recover everything. So those three things, so the, their own production system, supply chain, their products and their business models. So they are like bringing additional green jobs and new stimulus. So the only point is that it needs a, a bit of uh, not only patience, but really uh, in-depth like a discussions that how we roll out at mass scale. Liesel Mitchell is a downtown dweller, urban explorer and conversationalist observing city life in lockdown. Hello there bubble folk, it's Liesel here. I hope uh, today is a lovely day and you're enjoying your um, your lives yeah whatever you're choosing to do right now I hope you are enjoying making the most of feeling gratitude for and um, if you're not hey stop pause look around and uh, maybe just take a minute to go hmm what am I thankful for what do I appreciate in my life and um, weirdly a bit of gratitude goes a long way to making you feel good about things um, so yeah I like to try and do a little bit of gratitude talk when I'm feeling a bit uh, low or even if I'm feeling okay. It's just really good to check in with yourself and say, hey, what am I grateful for? What is important to me and how lucky am I to have some of these really amazing things in my life? And it can be as simple as fresh air, you know? I mean, we live in a country where the air is pretty clean. Um, running water, wow, gosh, you know, I mean, it's so easy to turn on the tap, take that for granted and to forget that that is a luxury that we have, you know, turning lights on, being able to enjoy the heat of a warm, warm house and, you know, having electricity and uh, having shoes on our feet when it's cold, you know, that's, I mean, they're, they're things that we forget. We still actually have all these amazing, you know, um, luxuries in our life really and 
Then of course those are just the material things, although some of those are necessities like air and water. But um, you know, the people in your life and the relationships you have, the, the care that's around you, the care you can offer it to other people. I mean, these are just, yeah, amazing things. And we live in a relatively peaceful country um, with reasonably democratic leadership and um, pretty good access to resources in the bigger picture. It can always be better, but um, we at least have a, a sort of a structure that is there in place that um, we can use to try and um, create change. And, you know, in so many ways, we're just very privileged in this country. Um, and that's not to say that some people are not privileged in this country because I think there are varying degrees of access to these things and there is also, you know, clearly discrimination as well. Um, not everyone gets the same access. So, yeah, I am aware of that. But in saying that, I'm just trying to, I guess, highlight that no matter what our situation is, there are things in our lives that we can be grateful for. And, um, and it helps us feel good about our lives when we can take notice of those things and appreciate them. So, um, yeah, I guess on the, on the sort of line of that, sort of along the same lines of that thinking is um, kind of feeling good about stuff is often also about the choices you make and, you know, the relationships you create, the spaces you, you move in and how you uh, live your life. And I think part of that is also staying true to who you are. Um, and that's a really hard thing to do. Uh, it's not easy when there's other people around you that maybe have um, conflicting interests or want to uh, pressure you into behaving in certain ways. And uh, it's sometimes very difficult to stand up for what you think is right or live life the way that you think it's right. Uh, and sometimes we forget to listen to ourselves because there's a lot of noise out there saying, hey, do it this way or do it this way. But um, that's where it's really important to give yourself pause time. And I know often just even being able to say to someone if they're like, can you get this done for me right now? And you're like, oh my gosh, I just can't. I just can't, but you say yes, of course, you know, um, in the in the moment. And even learning how to sort of remind yourself to say, hey, I don't have to say yes right away. I can just actually give myself a pause where I can think about it and say, hey, can I get back to you about that? I just need a chance to check my diary and have a think about it. And even just being able to pop that into your um, into your relationships, into your spaces, it can give you a little bit of room just to go, hey, does that feel like the right response or do I need to make a different choice? Um, and that gives you time to think about what's important for you. So yeah, sticking to who you are, what's important to you and um, thinking about how that affects uh, what's around you and then what, what you are in turn grateful for. So uh, I leave you with the sense of being thankful for what's around you and being true to who you are. So I will talk with you again soon. Have a wonderful afternoon. We're talking with Mushtaq Memon from the UN Environment Programme. He's based in Bangkok. One of the things that the pandemic has done is it's made us more aware of the fragility and, and perhaps to some extent the robustness of the supply chains that that keep us alive um you know the, the things like people selling flowers basically had to to get rid of them because they they couldn't take them anywhere and we it was during lockdown it was very hard to get hold of flour and yeast um and, and because there were just little bits in the in the supply chain that didn't manage to work whereas it, as a whole it worked the supermarkets were were mostly full but it, it has made people aware of the the, the global nature of our of our supply chain, food in particular. Yeah, no. See, again, it goes uh, both ways. Suppose we saw that uh, in Asia Pacific, uh, but all over the world, with the economic growth, the middle income increased rapidly. Now, the challenge with the middle income camp that they are mass consumers. 
and if it's a very rich they invest into the branded or like a very high-end goods which is uh, very few like uh, but they have that on the poor people they invest in their survival so the middle income they buy like every six months new phones uh, like a new plastic bags and so on so the mass consumer and that's where we saw a lot of a supply chain issues that because the global trade and all this into that, that how the things were being dumped in the different countries uh, because of that mass consumption. So that was one issue. Now part that. Now the other issue it came that with this pandemic, there was a demand for the gloves, for the masks and so on. And not many countries were initially prepared to uh, uh, produce their own. But we also saw that uh, it pushed the countries like my country, Pakistan, they are producing and even exporting. They never had that production systems beforehand. So it gives us the, now our like a feeling that we can control. We can control the supply chains. We can control that. So only the thing is that how we raise the awareness to avoid the mass consumerism and how we, we have a resilience on the supply chains if the pandemic is there what are the needed items that can be generated locally, disposed of locally in a proper way and so on. Of all of the societal level changes you've seen in the last few months, what do you think is going to stick and what do you hope will stick? Okay, one is that uh, commuting, for example, uh, like uh, how much uh, air pollution coming from the transport sector, for example, like uh, it has changed that conventional mode that everybody should work in the offices. So they commute, they go to the like nine to five systems and so on. So that has changed uh, quite a bit. And also international travels, like uh, these meetings, conferences, where we attract like hundreds of delegates and uh, a lot of uh, like uh, uh, carbon footprints with each delegate and so on. So except the essential like face to face, where it's really, diplomacy is required that but except that like a mis- uh, many trainings other things can be done online so one thing is a travel is a very important area where we look into that that how it can move uh, differently number two also the food uh, that uh, we see that uh, food systems but initially a lot of food loss because they were not using the it's they were still with the conventional middleman like uh, systems so when the food arrives at a supermarket, the demand already down and then there's a lot of wastage and so on. But now with ITs, with all these mobiles, the demand and supply can be easily aligned. Uh, so in that way, we can save a lot of food loss of the perishable items and so on. So that is uh, with the role of ITs and all this can very important in the food loss and food waste also. Number three, also the reverse logistics for uh, collecting back the packaging waste and so on. Like uh, there are so many delivery systems like Food Panda, Grab and so on. So if we align properly that they can also bring back the previous days like orders, the packaging and so on. So it have a central recycling. So this reverse uh, uh, collection systems using again the ITs and partnerships uh, will be very useful on that one. And then also the schooling, as uh, like uh, some countries already had that uh, uh, home schooling for uh, various reasons like Australia and so on. But now it is also becoming very uh, a good example that how people can get uh, benefit of home schooling. So not to only rely on the normal schooling systems, but they can also align the home schooling together. What do you think we can learn from the responses to the pandemic for the longer term questions, the intergenerational challenges that you deal with, the climate change, social justice and so on? Yeah, as I say that many things uh, which were not visible or where people were, did not believe into that, that they have a control over that. Now they start believing whether it be the pollution side, supply chain and so on. That's already discussed. Now, in addition to that, the things like resilience, like waste management systems were not intact. And people gave a little attention to the waste management because not in sight, not in mind situation. Like people pay for water because that's they really need water. But if they dump the waste outside, they don't care. But now it becomes, for example, very important to look into that in the long term on that one. Number two is a resilience for the economics, like uh, the types of the businesses and so on. 
suppose the tourist industry went down, so many people get uh, jobless uh, in various sectors, uh, starting from uh, airways to the hotels to the food industries and so on. So how you align those industries that we are self-resilient in terms of uh, if they are there. So that means, suppose, airline industry, they may have uh, other uh, projects or other businesses. So if airline goes down, the other, I would say, compete, uh, uh, the businesses which are in competition, they go up. So they need to have a new thinking, a new way of uh, doing the business. That's my feeling. So do you think that people will take seriously the call for a, a, a regeneration rather than just a recovery? Yeah, I think so, because they are now forced to like, uh, uh, I mean, when I see the, my friends in Emirates Airline, for example, losing the jobs, uh, they never thought uh, last year of that Emirates, the best airline would have that impact. So now they, the uh, suppose friends who had invested in the, some alternative businesses, they do not feel the impact that high. They just switch their like more attention towards those businesses, uh, local businesses. But the uh, friends who were just relying on that job, they are in a bit of a challenging situation. So that gives uh, like uh, people to learn uh, from each other that uh, who got like out from this pandemic successfully or who like uh, got more challenges. So I think they will learn from each other. They adopt that, but they of course need a national support national roadmaps for doing so but that's really a requirement but i think uh, people are going to change that's my feeling what do you think are the attributes of leadership that are going to that, w- that we'll learn were a, a a good thing coming from this like we saw i think this pandemic uh, uh, blessing in a disguise in a way that many leaders become aware of their weaknesses that how they manage the pandemic and they also had a good chance to learn from other leaders who successfully managed the pandemic in their own countries, for example. So I think this has brought a very good learning for leaders themselves, also the voters. So next elections will define further on that, uh, that uh, who is going to survive. Uh, the leaders who can are learning very fast, even they make many mistakes because this is a new thing. So no one knew about that. So even uh, who are now uh, turning around the tables very quickly, they will surely survive and they will make it better. But still the, some leaders who are not still like uh, uh, getting to that level, they may lose the elections.
I have some questions to end with, and we'll go quickly through these. What's the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? It's to me, question? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay, success. So, success was on the sustainable lifestyles that people have started now looking and taking a pride being champions in those sustainable lifestyles. So that's uh, one of the major successes. Number two, the uh, conventional banks who are not investing in the environmental businesses and so on, they have started their windows to look on the uh, sort of a less interest for the environmental businesses and so on because the environmental businesses do not have a history or do not have their CV that how profitable those will be. So these are, those are just estimates on the paper. So banks are like uh, having their windows to help that. And third is the insurances that they have created the insurances for like pandemic situation, climate layer situations, bad weathers for the crops and so on. So I think these are the major successes to create the resilience and to create uh, a, like a green economy where uh, environment, economics and social uh, aspects go uh, hand in hand. So we're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes, our team of people doing good work. So you're in our superhero mansion. What is the superpower that's got you there? Okay, so just to give you a very immediate example, like uh, this new uh, assignment came to me on the global coordination on this uh, COVID. So I accepted on the top of my all the other work. So that's why on the weekends and all this, because uh, luckily my, uh, I would say luckily in a way that my family, they are uh, now doing the things on their own. My son is a PhD student in Cambridge in leukemia diagnosis. My daughter is doing PhD in Manchester on the cancer sciences. And my wife and two kids, they are in Karachi with their parents and so on. So that gives me a lot of uh, a bit of a time that I can invest into this type of uh, additional tasks. So I think that was uh, one very important thing. Number two, I have a passion for the uh, waste management. Like uh, I see the waste as the biggest resource, not in terms of the waste as a resource, because we need a lot of uh, uh, money in, uh, for recycling and also have a, ne a negative environmental impact. But I see the waste as a resource upstream that if we reduce the waste, that means we are saving our resources upstream. We are saving our resources on collection of waste and uh, recycling and so on. So I see the waste as a resource, but from upstream angle. So that gives me that how I can put that message down that people can feel that if they do not produce a waste or they produce lesser waste, how benefit they get and how benefit they provide to the society, to the community, to the environment. So these two things are really like pushing me to work uh, a bit harder, I would say. I like the notion of the, I think it's Sweden, that you can take water from a river, a factory can take water from a river, but that has to be um, downstream of its discharge. And I yeah. think if you, if you think through that and apply that quite widely, it's, it's a useful model. Exactly. That's where like, uh, we have to look in that, that the environment should be self-generated. Otherwise, uh, even three planets will not be enough the way our consumption patterns were before the COVID. So do you consider yourself to be an activist? I think so. Like, uh, uh, like uh, I have a many professional bindings or official that I cannot go to demonstrate on the road. Like my son is doing in Cambridge. He was author on the uh, dis uh, like uh, dismantling fossil fuel university because Cambridge takes a lot of money from the uh, gas and petroleum uh, companies. So he's more of a street activist, but I am more of the desk activist. But in a way, I work so it's become visible the messaging because when uh, I'm providing the technology information, the policy information on waste, it's also activism because I can survive uh, at some level on my job without going up. But I'm trying to put that uh, extra mile and that is activism in a way. And what challenge are you looking forward to in the next year or so? So basically, I am looking to see that uh, how the governments, national governments, they partner with each other. They help each other. So like a New Zealand prime minister has a friend in uh, like a Philippines president, for example, or Thailand prime minister. And they are just a 3M friend. They can call and tell like, uh, oh, this, uh, I can help you out. And that's say, uh, OK, I can help you out. 
So if the leaders, uh, they bring peace, so that's only uh, possible when there's a peace. So basically environment for peace. So the, the major challenge like India, Pakistan leader, they just uh, one call away, like uh, this should be a peace like China. So I'm really seeing that environment as a mechanism to bring the world peace also in a way. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Yeah, I would say that you enjoy your life at the peak you can, but just see what the way you are enjoying the lives. So as we say that, please do not disturb others while you are enjoying your life. So this disturbing others comes everything, even water pollution, even extra access, like a usage of the resources, uh, which uh, other people do not have access uh, because of poverty and so on. So whenever you are enjoying, you feel pride that you are helping the world rather taking away anything from the world. So that's my message to the listener. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Moira, any thoughts on closing? Um, I, th- I think that we all know that in order to improve uh, the state of our home planet, that we to make sacrifices and we have to make a contribution. But um, it's important to always remember the people like Mushtaq who, who have devoted their entire life to improving things for all of us. And I, I feel real gratitude. You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We're broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe to the podcast in all the places where you might do such things. We've had contributions from Tahu McKenzie and Liesl Mitchell. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, with Mawira Karatai in Fakutani and Mushtaq Memon in Bangkok. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin, with support from New Zealand On the Air.